Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. There was a a pastor that had worked at a small rural church for many years. And during his time there, he had requested from the congregation numerous times the possibility of moving the piano from one side of the platform to the other. Each time his request was met with great resistance. The overwhelming response was always, no, we can't do that. And after he retired, he came back to visit the church about five years later, and he noticed the piano had moved from one side of the stage all the way over to the other side. And he was very perplexed by this, and he, he just couldn't understand after years of trying uh, how they were able to actually effectively move the piano. So he asked the current pastor, uh, you know, however did you get the permission to move the piano? I tried for years, and they always resisted. And the pastor just sort of smugly grinned and said, well, I never asked permission. I just moved it one inch every day until it ended up on the other side of the platform. <laughs> See, that's how you do it. <laughs> if, you've, if you've been around the church for any length of time, uh, you know that there's one thing that is inevitable, and it's conflict. Conflict. Turns out that Christians, wait for it, will disagree. I know that's hard to believe, Uh, and if you haven't experienced this yet, I just want to encourage you to hang out a little longer, (laughs) because you will, (laughs) Uh, because Christians, you know, Christians are just people. I think Albie shared a a couple weeks ago about how, you know, we're just just sinners like everybody else, you know, and and, uh, the church needs a few more to join them. And, but the church is a family, you know, and even as the people of God, uh, we're not always going to get along. And uh, that's what is going on in the beginning of Philippians chapter 4. If you've been following along with us, you know that we've been in a series for quite a bit of time uh, through the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be looking today. So I want to encourage you to grab a Bible if you don't have one, uh, we have some paper Bibles in the back, and also um, you can certainly uh, get there on your phone or whatever you have today. want to make sure that you're able to follow along. Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Philippian church. We're at chapter four now, and so we're rounding third base on his letter to the Philippian church, and after pages of exhortation and encouragement and Paul is taking time to describe, uh, you know, rich theological truths about who Jesus is. He's talking about uh, topics like unity. Um, He's talking about the character of who Jesus is. And we get to this spot at the beginning of chapter 4 where he mentions two women in the church that can't seem to get along with each other that they're, they're at odds with each other. And so let's pick up together in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. We're going to read through verse 5. This is Paul. I entreat 
Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, can I just stop and say, aren't you glad that you have the names that you have? (laughs) Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. What I find so amazing here is that Paul calls these two women out by name. Um, just imagine sitting in a church service and you've heard, you know, wonderful exclamations about who Jesus is. And, you know, the custom would be in that time when a letter would arrive, uh, they would read it aloud publicly. And so you probably have somebody saying, you know what? Hey, we have a letter from Paul today. We're going to read it. And maybe it gets really quiet and someone starts to read the letter, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And they keep reading, talking about how Paul is praying for this group and talking about the gospel being preached, even though Paul is under house arrest in Rome, if you remember. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And maybe we can imagine a few people saying, you know, a hearty amen. Yes, Paul, right on. We have chapter two about the importance of being like Christ. And we have chapter three where he's outlining Paul's past and warning about the danger of false teachers among them. And then we get to chapter four. And he says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony with the Lord. Now, can you imagine going down in history as the two chicks who couldn't get along in the church. Like, here we are talking about this some 2,000 plus years later. That It seems like that would be a, a tough pill to swallow, but something is going on here to the point where Paul needs to address it. It needs to be brought up. Now, we don't know a lot about who these women are. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. However, we do know a little bit about them. We do know that they were leaders in the Philippian church. See, these were prominent women who labored alongside Paul in the gospel. They were the founding mothers of the Philippian church. And, you know, we don't know for sure, but it is very possible that these women were among the very first at a prayer meeting that took place in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to Philippi, but there is no Jewish synagogue in that province. And so the law, the Jewish law, required that uh, at least 10 males, sorry ladies, 10 males were needed to form a synagogue at that time. Pretty interesting little fact. Um, But there, there weren't any. There weren't enough. And so they ended up praying together by a river with some women. And these were some strong women of faith. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 16. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
I love that the church in Philippi was literally birthed out of a group of praying women. Isn't that awesome? This whole letter that Paul is writing to the Philippian church, they, they wouldn't have even been able to start a church if these women weren't there to, to pray with him and to see the outworkings of the beginning of a new church plant. I think that's pretty cool. Women had a prominent place in the life of the church in this time. And these are the women that, that co-labored with Paul as he began this work. And, and you know, Paul loves the Philippian church. He, he's like really affectionate. As you read the book of Philippians, you, you get this feeling like he's always encouraging them. He's always complimenting them. There, you know, other, you know, churches that he writes to oftentimes are like a train wreck. Like, I'm thinking about the, the Corinthian church, for one. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. Luckily, we only see that he's really kind of calling out a few with the Philippian church. But, you know, Paul loves this church, and he loves the women that helped start the church. But a conflict has arisen among some of the women that he dearly loves that helped him begin this new work. Um, somewhere along the way, something happened between these two ladies and it has gotten to the place where it is now affecting the whole church. Now, we don't really know what their disagreement was about, but here's what we can probably conclude. We can probably conclude that this was most likely not a doctrinal issue. Why is that? Because Paul uh, has no problem correcting doctrinal issues. <laughs> he, he does that quite often. And so there's no shortage of Paul correcting doctrinal issues in the early church. Most likely, this wasn't a behavioral issue because Paul had no problem correcting bad behavior. Uh, you know, he, he's very strong. Paul is very intent. He's, you know, he loves, fiercely loves, um, I kind of picture Paul to be like more of an intense person. Uh, like he fiercely loves the church. He's very serious about the gospel and the, the witness of the church to the world. That's why he's willing to call these ladies out by name, and he knows this is gonna be read in the middle of a church service. And, and he's willing to do that because he cares so deeply about the witness of the church to the world. Um, what we can probably conclude from their disagreement that this was likely a personal disagreement, that this was something between two women that had come between them on a personal level. But it's, it's escalated to the point where this is now not just affecting their relationship together, but it's actually affecting um, the relationship that they have with the rest of the church, which Paul then is worried that it's going to start affecting the rest of the province that they live in. And so he's, he's, he's serious. And so... You know, I read an article this week, uh, I was really surprised to read this, that showed that the number one reason that foreign missionaries go home, um, the most common reason that missionaries, foreign missionaries go home is not due to lack of money, is not due to illness, terrorism, homesickness, or even lack of fruit or response to the gospel. No, regretfully, the number one reason that foreign missionaries often go home is due to conflict with other missionaries. In fact, toward the end of the 20th century, the World Evangelical Alliance released a, a significant study that found conflict with peers as the top reason that North American missionaries leave the mission field. 
I, I read that and I was like, man, that is a shame. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, but the, at the same time, then I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of like, I, it depends on who you look at, what study you look at, but like, I think, you know, maybe on a lower side, you know, you've got like 30, something like 33,000 uh, different Protestant denominations, maybe 45 on the higher end. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing uh, if we were to, you know, kind of like break it all down and figure out why do, why do people um, splinter off oftentimes? And I think a lot of it has to do with what Paul is addressing here in, in Philippians 4. Now, let me ask you a question. Do Christians, do good Christians ever disagree over issues in the realm of opinion? Yeah, right? I mean, all throughout Paul's letter, there's a theme that comes up often about unity, unity in the church. But how many know that unity does not mean uniformity? How many know that? We gotta catch that because it's, it's really easy to conflate the two. Unity does not mean uniformity. There's gonna be plenty of people that disagree. You know, I'm having a really hard time coming up with something that the church uh, has disagreed on over the past year. Uh, <laughs> I'm being very sarcastic right now if you're not catching it. <laughs> but we, if, this, if, if the past year or so has shown us anything, it's that Christians have no problem disagreeing with one another. Am I right? Good people are going to disagree. Christians are going to disagree. But the danger is when our disagreements begin to affect our larger witness to the world around us. And I think we need to take a really hard look at our witness as a church. And I'm not just talking about Elm City, although that's super important as well, but the capital C church really needs to take stock of how its witness is working out right now. I think we've seen some better years um, Paul is correcting this church that he dearly loves because he doesn't want the witness to affect the world around them. And, and I would say the same to us, that it, it is so crucial for us to, to see where we are so that we can preserve our witness to the world around us. And, and I happen to believe that, you know, the world around us does not need any more bad news from the church right now. Like, the stakes are just way too high right now for us to have a bad witness for the world. What I love about Paul and how he sort of, uh, you know, confronts this is that, you know, Paul, he, he deals with the issue, like, head on. Like, he doesn't ignore it or pretend. He doesn't procrastinate. He, he confronts it head on. And Paul, you'll notice he doesn't take sides, actually. So when he says, uh, in, the, in the beginning of, of chapter 4, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. You know, I, I read somewhere this week that um, grammatically, he didn't actually need to say it like that. Like, he says it twice. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche. He could have said that once, but be, he did it for emphasis. He did it because he's not really interested in what their disagreement was or who started it. He just wants them to deal with it. And even, I love this, he even gives them the solution for how they're to deal with it. He gives them 
the solution for how they're going to resolve this. And the solution to their problem is found in the phrase, in the Lord. In the Lord. I entreat Iodia, I entreat Sintichi to agree, what? In the Lord. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? Well, as I said earlier, we don't need to agree on everything as Christians. But agreeing in the Lord means that you value the things that you agree upon because of your shared connection to Christ more than you value the things that you disagree upon. I think this is huge. We oftentimes spend so much time focused on the things that we disagree about as Christians. And it always ends up, you know, derailing and causing factions. And, you know, there's so much that we agree upon if we're following Jesus, true believers. There's so much that we could focus on in agreement that outweighs, far outweighs the disagreements that we have. It's it's amazing, you know, I, I was thinking this week, like, you know, we're going to spend eternity with fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord if they're following Jesus. We're going to be together forever. And all the, 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 you know, the disagreements or the, you know, the theological problems or, you know, all the personality quirks and, and all that stuff is going to be ironed out and we're going to be living together for eternity. And I, I don't want to think back on my temporal earthly life and say, I spent so much time uh, disagreeing with fellow believers that it just, it, it didn't mean anything. It was a blip on the radar of eternity. And how can I begin to practice this now? Well, I think one of the, the ways that we can do that is really understand what it means to agree in the Lord. No, I'm not going to agree with everything that another believer agrees with or has an opinion about. But that shouldn't necessarily prevent me from being in community with that person. Now, there's different levels and, you know, there's different, we're not always going to be in the same community as every other Christian, you know. We're not always going to have the same, you know, thoughts politically or socially or, you know, and, and we're not meant to. But what can we agree upon that outweighs everything else? I'm going to tell you what it is. You ready? It's the saving work of Jesus Christ on a cross. That is what levels everything. That that fact alone is what allows us to be together, even when we have disagreements. And my encouragement today is, is for us to live into that, is to take a step towards that. There was a study done by the American Psychological Association of an orchestra. And they asked different people in the orchestra what they thought of the other people in the orchestra, which is kind of a scary thought. Um, And they discovered that percussionists were seen as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing. Now, I'm... (laughs) As a, as a fellow drummer here, where, where are my other drummers? I, I feel really bad saying that, but that's just what they said, okay? String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. <laughs> the orchestra overwhelmingly chose the adjective loud to describe brass players. 
Woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, yet very egotistical. Now, here's a question given what you just heard. How on earth can people with such different perceptions of one another and different personality quirks make such beautiful music together? (laughs) Given all that you just heard, here's how they do it. They subordinate their feelings and their biases to the leadership of the conductor. See, once, once an orchestra gets into the pit, and if you've ever been, if you've ever seen a, an orchestra, it's quite, it's quite a sight, right? The sounds, the sights, it's, it's phenomenal. Once they get into the pit and they, and they get their music ready and, and the lights come down and you hear that, that first warm-up, there's really nothing like it. It's just an amazing, amazing thing to experience. And, and they begin to warm up. See, they're not thinking about their personality differences with the percussionists, okay? They're not, they're not thinking about the different things that divide them politically or socially. They're there, and they are ready to make beautiful music because they subordinate all of their feelings and all of their opinions to what the conductor wants, what the conductor is looking for. And because they're able to do that, They are able to convey something beautiful. And I think it's a really good picture of what the church can look like when it makes Jesus the conductor. When we make Jesus the one that we rally around and where we lay down our opinions about this or that, fill in the blank, and there's no shortage of things, like I said, that we could disagree upon. But when we're able to subordinate our feelings and our opinions to Jesus, I believe that's when we're going to begin to see greater unity in the church. And our witness to the world will be strengthened as a result. And it's a beautiful picture, I think, of the broken mess that is the church. For those who know me know that I'm passionate about the local church. There's no replacement for it. There's nothing like it. It's, it's the most unique community that there ever was, and Jesus himself died on a cross for it. So it is a mess, and it's a mess because we're here, because we're a mess. But Jesus loves the church. Paul loves the church. He wants to see their witness preserved in the world. And so Paul is calling these women to see their issue through the lens of the gospel. See, they could just go on acting like, oh, it's, well, it's just a personality difference. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal disagreement. No, it's not. It's, it's actually beginning to affect the community. And this is how conflict works, by the way. It's not a personal problem at some point. It's like the person who, who thinks they're out on a lake and, you know, there's a leak in the boat. And, it, and they look over and they're like, well, that seems like a personal problem to me. You know, well, no, it's not. If there are multiple people in the boat and there's a leak and that thing's going to sink if you don't plug it up and fix it, it's everybody's problem. And I think Paul is getting at that in this, in this chapter. He, he wants them to take care of it. And in fact, he calls people in. And he says, you know, my true companion, we don't know exactly who that is. 
uh, either, but it's somebody that he worked alongside. People have thoughts about who that is, but he's calling the church together to help them out, help these ladies out. He wants them to see their issue through the gospel, the lens of the gospel. And this way of thinking, by the way, I think flies in the face of our culture today. The message of our culture today, see, we're surrounded with, with narratives that run counter gospel all the time. We live in it. We're saturated in it. Sometimes we don't even know the difference between it anymore. That's why we got to go back to the gospel. But here's one of the narratives that gets reinforced in our culture. And I think this has become, uh, if we're not careful, this idea and begin to saturate in, and become this quasi-Christianity uh, feel-good message. And here's what it looks like. This is what people want you to ask. This is what advertisements uh, program you to think. And, and here's what it is. What is best for me and my personal happiness? You hear it every day. You don't even, I bet half the time you don't even know or can't identify it because it's so pervasive in our culture. And what happens with that is that it runs this idea of personal happiness. It runs counter-narrative to the gospel. Let me tell you something. If you're a true follower of Jesus, and I say that very specifically because there are so many people that would claim the name of Jesus that, frankly, are not following Jesus, okay? It, it's very, I mean, I think some 70-something some percent of America thinks they're Christians, and that's because we have a Christian version or American Christianity version of what it means to follow Jesus. When you break that down, it really just, it, it, it doesn't mean a whole lot, <laughs> they found in studies. If you're a true follower of Jesus, your personal happiness is not the highest goal in life. I'm going to say that one more time. If you are a follower of Jesus, your personal happiness is not the highest goal in this life. Happiness is a gift. It's not a right. The message of Christianity is that you will find life when you lose yours. We can't get this twisted. I, I see this message all the time, and it, it infuriates me. When we blend the two together, and we act like, Everything should be great. Following Jesus, it got my whole life together. You know, I'm feeling great. It's, a lot of it, oftentimes, is based on emotion. You know, it's, it's like, I always think about the disciples, like, you know, the ones that went to their death for Jesus. And to see some of the feel-good, positive, self-help Christianity messages that you might see in memes today or in messages that make you feel like everything's great and everything should be great all the time. And if you're following Jesus, that's an extra plus. Um, this this feel-good Christianity message. And I just like always, I don't know why, I always picture what the disciples look like going to their death. I have a book on my shelf uh, called Fox's Book of Martyrs. You might be familiar with that. And it just chronicles the list of people that went to their death for the cause of Christ. People getting crucified upside down, thrown to the lions because of their belief. They were not willing to give up their faith in Jesus. And then I look at these self-help, feel-good, Christianity, 21st century America message, and I'm like, something's not right. Something's not adding up. What would they have thought about that? I don't think it would have made sense. 
We've watered down this idea of what it looks like to follow Jesus for real. And it's not always a bed of roses, as we can see. Jesus is the goal. And if Jesus is the goal and not your personal happiness, that's where he says you're going to find true life. Because Jesus is the goal, not your personal happiness. If Jesus is the goal, then personal happiness, as I said, is, it's a bonus. It's a gift. It's not a right. It's not built in just because we live in America. All right. I want to uh, just shift here for a second, and I want to talk about how do we make the jump from, like, first century, uh, you know, letter to the Philippian church and jump to the 21st century where how does this, like, work itself over and apply to us? Well, Paul uh, presupposes a few things. The first thing that he presupposes where this is actually going to make sense for us as a community, where we have the chance to work out our stuff because stuff is just inevitable. I'm just, like... (laughs) just like already just right off the top, I know that conflict is inevitable. It's, it's not if, it's when. When is this going to happen? Like I said, hang around. Hang around for a little longer uh, if you haven't experienced this yet. But Paul presupposes that in order to work your stuff out with other people, that you are going to, first of all, already be in true community. He's, he's presupposing that you are already in real, true community. The type of community where you are known and you know other people. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Where people see through the facade and they see through to who you really are. The type of community where people could call you out on your stuff. And by the way, that's how you know if you're in real, true community. If you have kind of given yourself to a community of people that know and that you know and know you and they have permission to confront you on your stuff. That's how you know if you're in true community. Oh, you say, well, maybe, you know, well, I have tons of friends. I'm a, I'm a social extrovert, very social. Listen, you can have all kinds of friends and still not be in true community. You can be a social, you can be the, the, the biggest social person there is and still not be in true community. Your friendship circles could be a mile wide and an inch deep. And Paul is talking about getting into community where you can know and be known. People that will love you that will share the gospel with you, that will at times come alongside you in encouragement and joy, but also confrontation. Because we grow in the moments where God has given us others to confront us and call us out on our stuff. Let me tell you something. I can't imagine doing the Christian faith walk anymore without having that kind of community around me. It's, it's, it's been close to 20 years, I think. Uh, where I've been in a small group environment with a group of people uh, that has ebbed and flowed over the years, yes. But that, that community life has, has been part of my experience. And I don't even know what it's like anymore to do the Christian faith walk without that type of community, of being known and knowing other people. The people that are there to celebrate 
you know, you know, my anniversary or, you know, watch my kids for me so I can go on a date. Uh, you know, I just don't know what that even looks like anymore not to have that. And so around here, Elm City Church, um, this, this type of community that we're talking about, doesn't, it doesn't happen in this space. Like, this is really good, but this is not all there is to who we are. I want to encourage you to uh, find out more about our life groups. Life groups are, are the, the spaces and the pockets and the moments that happen with people that go beyond a weekend gathering, and it's usually the best context for following Jesus. I mean, don't get me wrong, this serves a purpose. We get to, you know, open up pages of scripture, we get to worship together through song, we get to hear and see the gathered church, so this is totally important to who we are. But there's a whole other side of it, and I'm talking about the daily stuff of walking out what it means to, to, to be in the community of faith, and the, the, the Monday through Saturday, you know, who, who does that get spent with in your life? Something to consider. And then another thing that Paul kind of sort of wants us to do is he wants us to sort of deal with conflict. Um, one of the things you noticed is that Paul, like, like I said, he, he confronted it head on. Like he, he just went for it. He just said, you know, I'm, ca- I'm calling out these ladies. Uh, you know, part of me thinks that, man, ugh, a little bit of a low blow. Paul is in Rome uh, under house arrest, he's like, watch this, guys. <laughs> when they get together for their Sunday gathering, they're going to, you know, get through pages of exhortation about Jesus, and all of a sudden, they're going to drop these names. And it's like, wow. But I was thinking about this this week. Like, Paul was quite a, you know, it took a while for news to travel in that time, right? This took some time. So this had obviously been going on long enough, and it got back to Paul, who's in Rome, that they were having a disagreement and it started affecting the church. It's like, whoa. So he, he calls it out. He deals with the conflict. And I think he's telling us to do the same thing. See, the, the human tendency when conflict arises, and I know this all too well because I grew up in the church, so I've seen everything you can imagine. The human tendency when it comes to conflict is to bolt. I've seen it. I, it's happened to me. People around me, you know, if, if you don't like, you fill in the blank. I, I, I'm not liking my life group right now. Well, no problem. I'll just go find another one. I, I, I'm, I, I am not loving the church. It's just not meeting my needs right now. Oh, no problem. I'll, you know what? I'll find another one. And this happens to the point where I think right what's going on as a result of that sometimes is that there's a bunch of spiritual tumbleweeds just all over the place. Let me tell you this. You're not helping the kingdom of God by bolting every time there's a conflict. You're not. Because Paul has built it in. He's like, I want you guys to, to, to work on this. Like, it, it's right here. Listen, if you're here today, maybe even, because you had a problem at another church, um, and there's so, many, there's so many things that happen. You know, I, I get it. As I said, I grew up in the church, so I understand there's complexities. But if you're here today because you have unresolved conflict with someone in another church, I want to encourage you. Do me a huge favor. After today, glad that you joined us. 
I want you to make it a priority in the next week or so to get in contact with whoever that was, whoever that is, maybe it's a group or an individual, and I want you to do your very best to make the conflict fixed, like to go back to that church and to, to lovingly embrace whatever it is, but work it out. And maybe God will call you back to that church as a result. Or maybe he's called you here. And that's fine. But, but we can't just kind of go through life and, and not resolve our conflicts. It's not the gospel. The gospel gives us the ability to resolve our stuff with others. You know, there's a real danger in letting conflict between fellow Christians drag on. And I think this is why Paul wrote to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. In chapter 5, he says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. If this animosity continues, there is a danger that the church might actually consume itself. Let me tell you something. The world around is watching, probably more than ever right now. They're looking to see if Jesus really is good. Do you know how they know if Jesus really is as good as he says he is? They see our example. That's, that's a tangible example to the world of Jesus being who he is. And you know what's crazy about that is that's the way Jesus designed it, but we know that we're screwed up. We know that we're flawed. We know there are going to be problems. Yet Jesus used the church, and we are his A-game. There is no plan B. The, the church is Jesus' hope for the world. Sometimes it's hard to believe that. I, have, I just have to say that out loud once in a while just to be reminded <laughs> because it doesn't feel that way sometimes. It really doesn't. I want, I want the church to have a better witness in the world. And you know who that starts with? Let's be the type of people that want to resolve our conflicts because the gospel's worth it. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.